0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Nicholas Jackson here, better known as Nicknack Jack, and I am producing this. Uh, Space Pioneers is the name of this project. Uh, the first project within Space Pioneers is called A New Beginning, and this is a story I've been working on for quite some time, um, and perhaps if I finish it and get it all podcasted for you, I will uh, even go into the story behind it and what inspired me and all that happy um, stuff. But uh, at the moment, uh, I'm just going to start the story chapter by chapter and release it on the web. That is my plan here. So um, it may go, go through a few revisions as it's still being worked on. It's not officially done yet. Um, and my hope uh, when it is officially done uh, through podcast first is then I can translate it into a book, which you can spend money on. So uh, this is this is my plan here. Um, so let's start it out with the prologue. It is the year 2048, and the situation on Earth is growing worse. In response to the problem, the United Nations of the world has renewed efforts to establish a colony on the moon. Plagued by the lack of power and resources, the UNW decides to commission a group of private companies to help build the colony in exchange for development rights. While the authorities argue over who should be in command of the mission, a man of great power places John Biko in command, hoping he can establish a colony that will save the human race. Part 1. Chapter 1. The Golden Opportunity. John Andrew Biko felt he was a successful 24-year-old man living in the San Francisco Bay Area during the mid-21st century. His father, Nathaniel Cole Biko, had spent his 30-year career developing and selling interactive toy concepts. His mother, Loretta Angela Biko, was still enjoying a successful career as a member of the United Nations of the World Senate. Although John's career currently paled in comparison to that of his parents, he was proud of what he had accomplished in the course of his life thus far. John had been a respectful child who had always yielded to the hopes and desires of his parents. This philosophy had proved very fruitful for him. Going along with the, with his parents' encourage, encouragements had allowed to him to achieve tremendous academic success. The persuasive traits he had inherited from his father, along with his creative traits he had inherited from his mother, had made it nearly impossible for him to get a bad mark, even when he clearly deserved it. This fact had taught John to think more strategically about his development than his peers. Frankly speaking, his single goal in life was to make his parents proud. Since this goal depended mainly on knowing the origin of his parents' pride along with the manner in which they judged his success, John found that he was easily able to manipulate them in an effort to achieve his goal. Being an only child, John had never been tasked with the need to compete for his parents' pride. So, in a way, it always known that he would accomplish his goal irrespective of, of his actions. Yet, the importance of showmanship was not to be denied. In fact, John had found that the way he achieved success in life didn't matter so much as the fact that he did achieve success. This discovery had slowly eroded at his once sharp code of ethics. Honesty was an important source of pride for his parents, so telling outright lies rarely seemed like a viable option to him. However, John had become quite adept at reframing actions that wouldn't yield parental pride into those that would. The fact that there was an up and downside to every event had kept John from feeling the stench failure countless times in his life this worked out well considering his father's obsessive use of the Jean kranz quote failure is not an option his father's rhetoric had worked john had never failed at anything he had tried he had found a way to derive success out of everything he had ever done and those things that he couldn't achieve success at he simply avoided there was no sense doing something sans success this was john's consequential philosophy The only problem was that this philosophy didn't seem to offer him a very broad existence now, that he lived among the complexities of the adult world. His endeavor to make his parents proud didn't seem to allow him to explore much of what the world appeared to offer to others. The academic world was full of definitive success and failure. John had learned how to appear successful in its terms. The professional world was structured in much the same manner, and, as a result, John was finding success in the terms of that world as well. But those around him were more than successful or unsuccessful. They were happy or unhappy, lonely or loved, lost or found. But these were emotions rather than an analysis of effectiveness based on definitive terms. And John had no idea how to successfully integrate such emotions into his life. Technically speaking, John's life consisted of all that you would expect from a young working professional. He had earned a degree in aviation and seismology from the World Aviation and Space Administration Academy. After earning his credentials, John had been recruited by WASA to work in the Earthquake Advisory Center located in San Jose. The simplicity of his job had allowed him to climb the chain of command exceptionally fast. Within two years of graduating from the WAsa Academy, John had been placed in charge of monitoring the entire west coast of the United Countries for signs of large seismic activities. Since it, this job was in the lower division of Wasa Command, it offered him the chance to contribute to the administration's research database while gaining command experience. It also afforded him comfortable living quarters in his home city of San Francisco. His living quarters were perfect for him, as they allowed him to be close to his parents' historic Alamo Square Victorian home while granting him the opportunity to keep up his flying skills by commuting to work via air transport or hover bike should he really feel the need for adventure. Yes, John Andrew Biko was a successful 24-year-old man living in the San Francisco Bay Area during the mid-21st century, but he was beginning to feel as if this weren't enough. The things he was doing on a day-to-day basis were easy, maybe even boring depending on how you wanted to look at it. Most people John knew would say that he simply needed to spice up his life, make some friends, go out on a few dates. But John wasn't motivated by these options. They offered him no grounds on which to achieve a definitive success. John was looking for a golden opportunity, something great he could succeed at, some sort of accomplishment that would fill his parents with eternal pride. But this was the real world, and John's job seemed to offer him no such opportunity. Today was just another boring Tuesday morning in the Earthquake Advisory Center. John's daydream was shattered by the crisp official voice of a subordinate officer endeavoring to make a report. Commander Biko, I just received word that you are to contact General Beauregard on Channel 1984. John looked up at the officer in bewilderment. He was a young studious officer who went by the name Miles O'Malley. His uniform was spotless, and he kept his thin tuft of light blonde hair neatly trimmed, a habit that wouldn't be required much longer based on the progression of his receding hairline. Although he was rarely derelict in in the performance of his duties, he must have been having an off day. Surely General Beauregard wouldn't request that John contact him on Channel 1984. That channel was reserved for high-class security clearance communications only. The General should have no reason to contact John on such a frequency. I beg your pardon, Sergeant O'Malley, but did you say that general that the General wanted me to contact him on Channel 1984? John ax- asked skeptically. He did indeed, sir, O'Malley replied. Did he say what it was about? John inquired. Of course not, sir. To do so would be a violation of... Pro- "'WASA Protocol,' O'Malley responded in a helpful but baffled tone, as if he were wondering what John had consumed instead of coffee that morning to make him forget such an elementary rule of protocol. "'Very well, then. I will make the call from my private office,' John said hesitantly. "'As you wish, sir,' Sergeant O'Malley responded obediently. As John got up to make his way through the busy central office of the Earthquake Advisory Center, he couldn't stop his mind from running wild. What could the general possibly want from him on such a secure channel? He had no idea, but he was eager to to find out. John had always been intimidated by General Beauregard. The general was in his mid-60s, about the same age as John's father. With gray hair, a large stature, a booming military voice, and an intimidating but neatly trimmed handlebar mustache. Although anyone would be intimidated by such a man, John felt that his own appearance didn't help matters much. Although John was 24, he was constantly accused of being no more than 16. He was short, about 1.7 meters, with neatly trimmed black hair, brown eyes, and a noticeable lack of facial hair. Although John knew his own age and experience well, he could not take himself seriously when he saw his reflection in the mirror. Apparently, his subordinate officers felt the same way as they walked the halls of the Earthquake Advisory Center and surveyed their commanding officers' immature looks. Of course, John's confidence in his looks looks received no boost by his lifelong lack of a significant other. He could tell himself that there was no need to seek a mate, but the fact of the matter was that he felt his lifelong lack of companionship disconcerting, and this fact certainly contributed a negative value to his self-image algorithm. Arriving at his private office, John activated the security lock and went over to his computer terminal. After punching in his full pen, an image of General Beauregard appeared on the screen. Commander Biko, the general bellowed. Please verify that you have accepted this transmission on Channel 1984. I have indeed, John responded. What is the reason for all this secrecy? There is no way this can be related to the operations of the Earthquake Advisory Center. "'I commend your astute observation, Commander Rico. "'I do indeed make this transmission to you "'on a different wa- on different Wassa business,' the general said solemnly. "'What on earth could this be about? "'Could he be getting a reassignment?' "'No, he didn't have enough experience "'to work elsewhere in WASA. "'More likely this was some sort of disciplinary action. "'But John had never failed at anything relative to work. "'Whatever this was, the general's approach to it "'certainly didn't seem logical. "'What WASA business does this pertain to?' John asked. The general paused before answering John's question. Although John couldn't read the general's mind and had no desire to entertain such a notion, it seemed as if he was pausing for dramatic emphasis. Whatever was on the general's mind had to be big. Commander Biko, next month I would like you to lead a colony mission to the moon, the general said in a hushed tone. What the fuck? Did he hear the general right? First off, Lost hadn't sent a colony team to the moon since the death since the disaster in 38, why would Wassa launch another team 10 years later? They hadn't discovered the reason for the first disaster. Was it safe? Second, who was John to command this mission? He specialized in aviation and seismology, and they had, and had very little command experience. Moreover, what kind of drugs had the general ingested to make him think that John was the proper man for the job? This made no sense whatsoever. On the other hand, a mission like this was just the sort of opportunity John had been looking for. If he had a clear if he, a clear underdog could succeed at such a mission, he would certainly earn the eternal pride of his parents. Hell, he would be in the history books. How could he possibly turn down such a perfect golden opportunity? Risks and illogicalities be damned, John couldn't possibly turn down the general's offer. "I'll happily accept this mission," John blurted before he could stop himself. Good, the general replied sharply. Attached, you will find the mission briefing. Please review it and begin your preparations. Yes, sir, John replied, ending the transmission. It wasn't until that moment that the laundry list of second guesses and doubts began to flood John's mind. And that is it for the first draft of Chapter 1. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see how you guys react. If you want to send me email, the address is nicnacjak at gmail.com. And, of course, you can donate and support my endeavors by clicking that nice little Donate button. Uh, A New Beginning Space Pioneers is brought to you by the Knickknack Network.